This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our reading today is from the third and fourth chapters of the book of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, so you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are bowing down to address us today. You are reaching down in your grace to your people who are often weary, often disobedient, often running away from you. 
not just teaching us, but querying us and challenging us. And Lord, by your spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts to listen, to receive, to be redirected, and to be transformed by your word and by your spirit. In the name of Christ Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen. You're all welcome to sit here and sit under the word of God today and listen to the story of the world's worst and angriest missionary. A missionary who was incredibly successful and yet bitter about his success. And perhaps we have some angry, resentful missionaries with us today. God is certainly speaking to all of us out of this strange, unusual prophecy of Jonah. We've been, over the last year, we've been working our way through the Old Testament, the series called Christ in the Old Testament, one message on each of these books, and we've been working our way through the major and now the minor prophets. And as we come to this book of Jonah, we realize this is very different from the rest of these prophecies, these long poems and prophecies and declamations of mercy and judgment. And here in Jonah, we find a story, a subversive story that goes around and underneath and challenges us in some unusual ways. And Jonah, we encounter as a conflicted prophet. He's sent on a mission to a people he can't stand, to unleash a revival that he can't stop, to encounter the grace of a God that he doesn't really understand. And the four chapters of this book actually split neatly into two halves. And in each half, we find God sending his reluctant prophet to Nineveh, and then challenging and probing his understanding of the grace of God. The book begins, as most of these prophetic books do, with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. And Jonah is told, you need to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, for its great wickedness has come up to heaven before me. Now, this is actually unprecedented because other prophets had preached against the pagan nations that had surrounded them, but Jonah's the only one who's actually sent to go to them. The God of Jonah is a sending God, and his purposes are far beyond the horizons of the Israelites and their prophets. He sent to Nineveh, the city that's situated in modern Mosul in northern Iraq. But at the time, it was the capital of the empire of Assyria, the most cruel, sadistic, and violent empire the world had ever known. It wouldn't be an exaggeration to describe Assyria as a terrorist state. They actually boasted of the awful things they did to anyone who had the foolishness to resist their armies. There were extensive reliefs in their palaces, portraying the evil they did. There were tablets in which their rulers boasted of the violence they'd done. Here's what King Ashurbanipal II boasted in one tablet. He had written down, I flayed many through my land and draped their skins over my walls. I burned their adolescent boys and girls and a pillar of heads I erected in front of the city. They were unleashing psychological warfare doing the most horrific things to the first city they encountered, so every city after that would realize it does not pay to resist the Assyrians. And the prophet Nahum, who we're going to encounter in a few weeks, who spoke God's judgment over Assyria, described Nineveh as the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And what Jonah did not know at the time that he was being sent on this mission, and honestly, it wouldn't have improved his mood if he did know this, was that God was going to use this awful, horrible empire of Assyria as his instrument of judgment over the northern kingdom. And God is going to use Assyria to destroy, to utterly wipe out the kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. But Jonah's suspicious. 
And he does not really believe that God has his own interests or the best interests of Israel at heart in this mission. Jonah wants God to hold this terrorist state to account. He wants them to be punished. But Jonah does not want the door of grace to be left open, even the slightest crack. He doesn't want God to warn Assyria. He wants God to smite Assyria. And he's afraid that unless God does what Jonah knows is best for Assyria and Israel, he's afraid God is about to make a terrible mistake. Because God, in Jonah's view, has potentially fatal character flaw. God has a reputation of being astoundingly merciful to those who don't deserve it. And for Jonah, that quality of God needs to be kept carefully under control, lest God should show mercy and demonstrate compassion to people we all know are far beyond deserving that. Oh yes, Jonah responds to God's call, and he responds promptly. He arises, but he heads in the opposite direction from Nineveh. He heads west. He boards a freighter bound for Tarshish, which is somewhere on the western edge of the world, Spain or even beyond that somewhere. And he's doing this not just to avoid this unpleasant, unpalatable mission. He's running from God's presence. He wants to get as far away from God as possible. And Jacques Ellul, the French writer, observes that the story of Jonah is indeed the story of all of us. We're all doing this. What sacrifices are we not ready to make to be far from the face of God? Unable as we are to accept that it is God himself who fulfills his impossible word. Jonah is willing to go to incredible lengths, to suffer great discomfort, to go far from a home he's probably never left before, to avoid and evade God and his mission. But surprise, surprise, as even a child knows, Jonah cannot outrun God. And the land has hardly sunk over the horizon before the sky grows ominously dark and the first drops of rain begin to pelt this little ship. And soon a massive hurricane arises and vents its fury on the small group of humans on board below. A storm, obviously, that's been sent by God, but not sent by God to destroy Jonah, but to save him. A severe mercy. As God so often sends storms into the lives of his servants, not to drown us, but to blow us back on course. Not that Jonah's even aware of what's happening. He's fallen into an exhausted, fitful, slightly guilty slumber down in the hold of the ship. And it's the captain who comes down and shakes the prophet awake, asking him, sir, how can you be asleep at a time like this? You need to get up and call on your God like we're all doing. And maybe whatever God you worship will take notice of us so that we don't all perish in this terrible storm. Because this is no ordinary storm. This is clearly the work of the gods or some god hunting down some guilty fleeing person. And the sooner we can find out who this person is and deal with it, the sooner the seas will calm. And so the sailors agree, let's cast some lots. And it's the sweating prophet Jonah, who of course draws the shortest straw. And everyone turns and stares at this stranger. And so the sailors ask him, yeah, maybe you could tell us, sir, who are you, the one responsible for this terrible trouble we're all in? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And Jonah swallows hard and he answers, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. It's a reluctant confession of faith. And I think it's telling that even before volunteering his religion, Jonah first states his ethnicity. I am a Hebrew. His loyalties are there. They're not wrong in themselves, but they've been maladjusted. And God's in the process of correcting and recalibrating his loyalties. 
And when Jonah tells these sailors that he's running away from the Lord, they freak out and they ask him, what the hell are you thinking? I mean, we might be pagans, but we're not morons. And even we know that it's a really, really dumb thing to try to run away from God. And as they're having this conversation, the ship is lurching up and down. The sea is getting rougher and rougher. The freighter is creaking more and more ominously. And so they ask him, okay, look, you're running away from God. So you need to tell us, what do we need to do to get the storm to stop? And Jonah sighs again and says, you need to pick me up and toss me overboard. It's the only way the sea's going to grow calm. I know it's my fault that this storm has come upon you. And it's not fair that you pagans be suffering for the sins of a man who should know better. And you know, through the four chapters of this book, Jonah doesn't come across very well. It's the pagans who always actually seem to be better than Jonah. But here at least is a noble and courageous moment for the runaway prophet. But the crew is not eager to do what he asks. They blanch at the thought of throwing a man to his death the way Jonah is suggesting. Instead, they do their very best to row their way back to land. But it's hopeless because the sea is growing wilder and wilder. And then they cry out to the God of Jonah and they pray, Please, Lord of Jonah, don't punish us for taking this man's life. Please don't hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For God, you've done as you've pleased. And then they take Jonah and one, two, three, they heave the prophet overboard. And the moment he hits the water, the raging sea grows calm and quiet and smooth. And at this, we're told, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the God of Jonah and they make vows to him. Meanwhile, underneath the water, God has provided a huge fish, a massive sea creature to swallow his runaway prophet. And Jonah is going to spend three days and three nights in the belly of this fish under protective custody, as it were. There have been a lot of people who've had trouble swallowing this story. Is this really literal? Could this really have happened? As though God needs to double check his biology textbook or his physics textbook before he's allowed to work a miracle and intervene in this world. And really, once we accept that God has created this world, how can there be anything that stops God from working in unexpected ways within them? The laws of physics and biology only describe what normally happens, what human beings normally observe. God does not feel particularly bound by them, and he often works in unusual and unaccountable ways. And inside this creature, whatever it was, perhaps a one-off creation for this particular mission, there in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally does what he had been so unwilling to do when he was safe back in his bedroom. He prays to the Lord, his God, in the world's darkest and smelliest prayer closet. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sunk down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. A vivid description of a man who had been sinking down into the deep forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. I mean, Jonah's not home free yet. He's still in a tight situation, but he recognizes that God is beginning his work of salvation and rescue for Jonah. And there in his cramped position in the belly of this beast, Jonah is beginning to learn a lesson about the mercy of God. A God who seeks after and saves even disobedient prophets. And you know, it's often, so often, when our well-laid plans have collapsed around our ears, and we've exhausted every possible human resource, and we've come to the utter end of ourselves, it's there in that place that we begin to learn and are free to encounter the grace of God. 
What I have vowed, I will make good, Jonah concludes. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. There's the whole Old Testament. There's the whole Bible in a single sentence. Salvation comes from God. Rescue belongs to the Lord. And actually, the glory of the whole story of Israel, the glory of the God that they worshipped, is that he is a God who hears the cry of the desperate and the undeserving. And no matter how far they've fallen, no matter how deep they've sunk, the arm of God stretches and reaches down even to the uttermost parts of the earth, even to the bottom of the sea, to rescue those who seem to be utterly beyond hope. And now that Jonah seems to have finally come to his senses, now that he's finally reconnected with Israel's God and the grace that this God brings, the Lord commands the fish and it vomits Jonah onto dry land. And then the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. After so much trouble, simply repeating the command that Jonah had been given in verse 1 of the book. Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So Jonah cleans himself off as best as he can. He trudges off eastwards to complete his mission, obedient at last, perhaps not with a very joyful heart, but knowing he cannot resist the will of God. And Jonah arrives and he encounters a very large city. In the NIV, which Sandra read, and the ESV, unfortunately don't translate it literally, but the book records that it was a great city to God. Because God cares about cities, even though cities are where evil and violence and injustice are concentrated, God cares about cities because that's where the human beings that he loves so much are concentrated. He cares about human cities and human civilizations. And so Jonah begins his urban mission to this huge metropolis. And you have to admit that Jonah is a very courageous preacher. He makes no effort whatsoever to soften his harsh message, his harsh pronouncement of the coming vengeance that's about to be unleashed. Here's his sermon. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Oh no, he makes no attempt to soften his message, to make it more palatable, to try to win over his listeners. You really get the impression, don't you, that Jonah's trying to preach in a way that's going to turn people off. Because he's looking forward to the downfall of this evil city with malicious pleasure. His preaching is a short, straightforward declaration of judgment. He encourages no response. He offers no hope. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And to his shock, he's not rejected. He's not executed. You feel like he would have almost welcomed martyrdom by these evil Ninevites. Miraculously, and a miracle actually far larger than the fish that swallowed Jonah up, miraculously, the Ninevites actually take this foreign prophet seriously. They believe the words that he's saying. And when his message reaches the throne room, the king proclaims a citywide fast. No food, no drink for man or beast, sackcloth and ashes for people and animals. It's actually quite curious in this book, by the way, how much non-human creatures are involved in this story. Humans and animals and plants are all in the same boat together. The king says, let's all get on our knees and cry out urgently to this strange God. And although Jonah had named no sins, their guilty consciences quickly suggest and prompt them to give up their evil ways and their violence. It's a desperate prayer. These are desperate actions, but they think to themselves, who knows? Who knows? This God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Perhaps there is a door of mercy that can be cracked open. And they reason to themselves, surely if God has gone to this trouble of sending a prophet to give us 40 days warning of disaster, 
somewhere in there they can perceive an unspoken implication that if we repent, if we humble ourselves, if we change our ways, perhaps, who knows, we can avert this awful punishment that's looming. And actually, they're, they're right. Because when God sees what they have done and observes how they've turned from their evil ways, God relents and God does not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. God relents because there's no fatalism in Scripture. There's no sense that we're all on a track that we cannot go off to either salvation or damnation. God is flexible enough to respond appropriately when people change. Whether they change from good to evil or evil to good, God responds appropriately. And when people humble themselves and repent, that is almost irresistible to the God who desires not condemnation and destruction and death and damnation for people. What God longs for is for people to be saved, to turn from evil, and to seek the face of God. Jonah has blundered into the world's greatest revival, but it's the last thing this preacher wants. This was exceedingly evil to Jonah, and he's angry. He is angry. This prophet didn't want repentance. He didn't want mercy. He was holding out for hardened hearts. He was praying for fire and brimstone to be dumped down from heaven. And Jonah prays a very different prayer than the one he prayed in the belly of the fish, an angry, bitter, offended prayer. Isn't this just what I said, God? When I was still at home, I knew this would happen. And this is exactly the thing that I was trying to forestall when I fled to Tarshish. And I knew, God, he says, quoting Exodus 34, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. He spits these words into God's face. And so now, God, take away my life. Just kill me now. Because in the face of your mercy to these terrible people, better for me to die than to live. Does anyone feel any sympathy for Jonah? Can anyone identify with this prophet? Is there anyone in this world that we would really rather God not show mercy to? From the second to the seventh grade, I was very badly bullied. I was at a Christian school, and Christian parents can often be blind to what happens in so-called Christian schools. And for those five or six years, pretty much every day, there was a group of kids who beat me up, pushed me in puddles, ripped my clothes. It took a long time for my parents to find out. And I still bear the scars of that experience, not physically, but psychologically. There's deep trauma there that continues to manifest itself and that my wife and my children are now being affected by. And the ringleader of these boys was a kid named Brian. And I found out a few years ago, him and his family became atheists are very anti-Christian, and have completely walked away and rejected the faith. And I don't feel completely sorry about that. And I know I should be praying for this person, but my prayer, if I prayed that prayer, which I haven't yet, would feel hollow and insincere. There are bad people in this world, people who have wounded us, people who have done terrible things, people who at this very moment are doing awful things in this world. And who deserve God's judgment? And we need justice in this world. We need wicked people to be called to account. And can you blame Jonah for looking at this city which had done so many awful things in the world and was about to do even more horrible things? Can we blame him for longing for God's justice to be unleashed against this city? Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, which I preached on months ago, Elijah wanted to die because no one believed his message. 
Jonah wanted to die because everyone had believed his message. And he's angry. And he unloads against God and God's regrettable mercy and compassion to unfitting recipients. Jonah prays that prayer, if you can call it a prayer. And God listens very patiently to his prophet. And then God quietly asks him a question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Do you do well to be so full of rage at what I've done? You know, Jonah's experience of grace inside the sea creature was real, but it was incomplete. Because you know what? Even prophets of God are works in progress. And God has much to do with all of us yet. And our angry prophet hikes to a spot east of the city. He makes himself a crude little shelter. And he sits down to wait and see what would happen to Nineveh. Hopefully something really, really horrible. And as he's waiting, God provides a leafy plant. What kind of plant it was, we don't know. But God made this plant to grow up very conveniently right over Jonah to give shade to his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah, who's in a stinking, stinking mood, he's very happy, at least about the plant and the relief it provides from the blazing sun. But at dawn, the next day, God provides a worm. It's amazing that God who's sending gigantic hurricanes is also appointing little worms to do his will. And this little worm chews away at the plant so that it withers. And when dawn comes, God sends a scorching east wind from the desert. And now the sun is blazing on Jonah's head so that he's growing faint with a splitting headache. And he wants to die again and grumbles, it'd be better for me to die than to live. Sitting here, getting heat stroke, waiting for a judgment that's never going to come. And God asks a second quiet question. Is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry about the plant, probing the prophet's heart? It is, Jonah says curtly. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But then the Lord says, and this is how the book abruptly ends. God observes, Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. Although you didn't tend it, you didn't make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. And should I not, and this is the last quiet question that God asks. Jonah, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals. Here's the prophet of the living God who's selfishly obsessed, like we all are, with his own small needs and comforts. But the generous heart of his God covers the entire creation. And the God of Jonah and the God of us all has compassion over all that he has made. And what God sees when he looks down at this great city of Nineveh is not a collection of torturers and terrorists. God sees 120,000 people who were so spiritually blind, they cannot distinguish their right hand from their left. And yes, Jonah and his fellow Israelites, who he represents, when pondering pagan spiritual blindness, could only feel contempt for those ignorant unbelievers. But God, contemplating the lostness of these Assyrians, only feels compassion. Because every human being crawling on this planet, however broken, shamed, defaced by sin, however much damage they're doing to themselves and to those around them, has been created in the image of God. And it grieves God to the heart to see those he has made and loved turning into the darkness. And so the book ends with a question, a query. Am I wrong, God asks, to have this concern for what I have made? And we're never told how Jonah answered. The question is left hanging in the air. A question we realize not just for Jonah, but for all of us who read this book. You know, the God of Jonah is a God who is sovereign over all the nations. He's a God, yes, who calls great empires to account. 
a God who also has concern for all the pagan masses. He's a God who's intimately involved with his creation at every scale. He's working through hurricane and fish and plant and worm and sun and wind. And this God has concern and compassion for all he has made, even on the animals. The very last word of the book, the animals. In Nineveh, God cares about. You know, the story at the beginning of the book should trigger some hazy memories for those of us who've read the Gospels. Here's the prophet of God sleeping in the hold of the ship while the storm is raging above. He's woken by those who are frightened for their lives. And then God intervenes. The sea grows calm immediately. And the crew of the boat are even more afraid than they were in the face of the storm. Sounds a lot like the story of Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee, doesn't it? When the disciples, the terrified disciples, wake up Jesus and he calms the storm with a word of command. In that story, though, Jesus was not running away from his mission. Remember the context of that story in the Gospels. Remember where Jesus is headed. He's headed, actually, to the east, away from Israel. He's crossing the lake to go to the land of the Gerasenes on a mission to encounter a man possessed by a legion of demons, a man who is naked and crying out and cutting himself with stones, someone that everyone was frightened of, but whom God had compassion on. In contrast to Jonah, Jesus is the perfect prophet who, far from trying to evade and escape the compassionate, costly call of God, prays, not my will, but yours be done. And do you know what the most characteristic emotion of Jesus that is offered for us in the Gospels, that the Lord was moved with compassion out of pity for the sinful lost people around him. His heart goes out for them. Instead of the guilty being flung over to save the innocent, of course, the innocent dies for the guilty. Jesus goes down to the grave three days, three nights, the sign of Jonah, the only sign Jesus gave before rising from the dead. And this Jesus who came with a heart filled with compassion, not just for the lost house of Israel, but for all the nations, shows up and he challenges the people of God, whether they share in that compassion of the Lord. As Christians, as the people of God, there's a grave temptation when we see the evil in the world and the degeneracy that we want to hunker down and go down into our little fortress, descend down into our bunker, bristling with weapons, and we feel ourselves at war with the world that God has sent us to save. It turns out that we're actually all in one boat together with our lost world, with the plants and the animals, with all creatures. We're one humanity together. And God calls us out of our clannishness, out of our tribalism, to begin to have a wideness in our hearts that is as wide as the mercy of God. When we encounter Christ, when we truly encounter Christ, the way that Paul did, we throw all those things overboard as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing him. Whatever racial, religious, ethnic, class, identity that we rely on, we reject all those things to boast only in Christ and Christ alone, who has come to show the inexplicable divine compassion and mercy for us guilty sinners. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, which the Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf wrote in 1996, in Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about the fact that all human beings, we tend to create a we that excludes the they. And the gospel of Christ is meant to break down all those walls of hostility. And Wolf writes that at the core of the Christian faith lies the persuasion that the others, the bad people out there, they need not be perceived as innocent in order to be loved. 
We don't need to perceive the other as innocent in order to love them. We know they're not. They ought to be embraced even when they are perceived as wrongdoers. As I read it, Wolf writes, the story of the cross is about God who desires to embrace precisely the sons and daughters of hell. This is the key to the reconciliation that God brings. Not to deny what we've seen and felt and experienced of the evil in this world and the evil done against us, to pretend that those are innocent, that we know full well are guilty, to recognize that we worship a God who embraces wrongdoers, including ourselves. And so Jesus tells us, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your family and hate the outsider. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you want to reflect the heart of God, love your enemies. Have compassion on those who do not deserve it. Because God is the ultimate other who crosses the vast chasm towards humanity in love for us. And therefore, how can we look on any fellow human with contempt instead of compassion when we felt the loving, gracious eyes of God upon us? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not our possession to dispense or withhold as we think proper because the grace of God is expansive beyond our comprehension. And God declares, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will show compassion on those to whom I will show compassion. God has shown mercy to us. He's shown compassion to us. So let's pray now to God that he would change our hard and wounded hearts to manifest his mercy to the undeserving world around us. Oh Lord, you are a gracious God. And your boast is that you show kindness and mercy and compassion to your enemies. And we are here humbled as we are reminded that you came in the person of your son, to die for undeserving sinners such as ourselves. And the only way we can come to you is with empty hands to receive a grace that we do not deserve. And Lord, as those who have had our own debts expunged by the blood of the Lamb, by your Spirit, and Lord, we need a miracle for this, but by your Spirit, help us to release those who have transgressed against us. Lord, we want to live in a world not of vengeance and bloodshed, We want to live in a world of reconciliation, of peace, of flourishing. And so we pray that you would send us to the nations to proclaim your message, not of condemnation, but of salvation, O Lord. We pray for revival. We pray for the multitudes to turn to you so that there may be a throng from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language gathered together as one family singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. You are worthy, O Lord, and we bow down before you. In your great name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.